Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim. We have a wonderful guest on, a wonderful conversation, and I hope everyone out there is doing wonderful. And Tim, since I'm throwing this word around so much, are you wonderful? I am doing wonderful, except for this dog barking. My God, I can't take it anymore. Other than that, I'm doing great, Lance, and I'm really excited to introduce this conversation with journalist, podcast host. Her name is Leah Rothman, and she's done a great job job on the podcast The Real Killer which is about the conviction of Keith Lamar who is scheduled to be executed by the state of Ohio in November of 2023. That's right. Keith has been on death row for 28 years and Leah and her team they're working diligently to tell Keith's story to show that this person is not responsible for the crimes that he is scheduled to be executed for. And we highly recommend you check out the podcast, The Real Killer. It's not only just an investigative podcast. It really is a story about a man who shouldn't be in the situation he's in. And if you'd like to hear episodes of Crawl Space ad-free, you can sign up for Crawl Space Premium now on Apple Podcasts. And in addition to ad-free episodes, you get early releases and our weekly bonus show. And if you're not an Apple user, you can go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm and sign up for Crawl Space Premium there. Tim, that dog that was barking, I'm pretty sure he was asking you where to find Crawl Space on social media. Could you just shout out to him where he can locate that? Hey, dog! Find us at Crawlspace Podcast or Crawlspace Pod. Thanks a lot for listening, everyone. We're going to cut quick for commercial here, and we'll be right back with Leah Rothman. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Welcome to the podcast. Leah Rothman, how are you today? I'm doing really well. How are you guys? We're doing fantastic. And I know the subject matter that you cover in your excellent podcast is serious. So I want to get this lighter note out of the way. You joined us and your background is not a virtual background. It's a real background that has hundreds of pictures with the connective threads, people to people. Again, I don't want to make light of it, but I love the fact that you showed up with that behind you. It's amazing work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. I thought about talking to you guys from my office slash spare bedroom, but this just felt more apropos. This is our dining room wall. My husband and I have been living with this. I keep saying, we can take it down. It's okay. We can take it down. He's like, nope, we're keeping it up throughout the duration of the podcast. <laughs> now, why does he insist on keeping it up? I, I'm surprised. I feel like my, my significant other would have went the other way. I thought, I'm going to do some TikTok videos. I've never been on TikTok in my life, but the original plan was like, each week, I'm going to come to the wall and I'm going to talk people through some things that I wasn't able to include in each episode, which I may still do. I haven't done yet. I think there are 11 people following me on TikTok. It's just a very different world. I mean, I'm obsessed with like all the makeup tutorials. So that's the main reason for keeping it up. 
So tell us about your background. How did you come to uh, start producing this podcast, The Real Killer? You know, I went to school for broadcast journalism and moved to New York there for about eight years, worked for Barbara Walters and some shows like Annie Biography, then moved to LA, just sort of went from like PA, you know, to AP to field producer. I think it was when I was hired at Crime Watch Daily and I was there for the full three years. And that was really my first sort of official jump into the true crime world. And that was an amazing yet intense experience. So I was just doing, you know, shows for ID because, you know, once you get into true crime, then you're in true crime. (laughs) And then the pandemic hit and I was basically laid off and I saw a posting. There was a job for a podcast with this company called AYR Media. This woman, Elisa Rosen, has this company, AYR Media. And she was hiring a writer and a producer for um, a podcast about the first wife of John Meehan from the Dirty John story. And that was my first podcast. So I wrote and produced on that. It's called The First Wife, John Meehan's Reign of Terror. So that was my first podcast experience. So from my bedroom, I sat at the computer and interviewed everyone over Zoom and then wrote, you know, all the episodes and just really, really fell in love with the medium and thankfully, you know, was able to work through the the pandemic. And then from there, and in my interview with Eliza, I had told her about this story about Melissa and Rodney, what we ended up doing the first season of The Real Killer on. And it was a story that I had told for Crime Watch Daily. And it was just, I could not stop thinking about the story. And I wanted to make a documentary film about them. The funding wasn't coming through. And I was like, I'll just see if Elise is interested. Maybe we can make a podcast about it. So you said that you fell in love with the medium of podcasting. Do you think that the content that you were producing was easier to produce because it was a podcast? And I don't mean easier like technically, but emotionally. I think it's hard to tell these stories regardless of the medium. In terms of like the producing of them and the final product, it's sometimes more interesting to hear people describe things instead of just showing them pictures of crime scenes. And, you know, to actually hear someone's basically like firsthand account, like an I survived account, just hearing someone's story as opposed to seeing it, I think is very powerful. It was a weird way to ask the question whether it was easier psychologically to handle something like this through a podcast as opposed to through a television medium. I think the human connection is always important matter what story you're telling. So, you know, to be able to sit across from someone in the same room is always more powerful and more intimate. If you can make somebody feel open and comfortable to talk, then it works in this way too. What about season two of The Real Killer? I've been listening. It is fantastic. It is tragic as well. The story of Keith Lamar. Can you tell us a bit about this season? I first learned about the case because I was talking to the senior producer over at Jason Flom's wrongful conviction. And I was actually pitching the story of Christopher Dunn, this man who's in prison in Missouri, which by the way, I think everyone should look into his case. So I was sort of saying, Hey, I've got this story. It won't work for us right now. Unfortunately, would you guys be interested? And he said, yes. And then he also said, we also have a story that's kind of almost too big for us. Would you be interested? It was the story of Keith Lamar. In just sort of like the headline of it all, you know, he's like, this guy was involved in this uprising in Ohio. And he just basically gave me the headline of the story. And I got off the phone with him and I looked it up and I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) I was actually there. I was a, a senior at Ohio State at the time doing an internship. The uprising was happening, you know, while I was an intern at this local station and I begged them to let me go. They let me go. So I had like a teeny tiny connection to the story, which is always 
important for me to find some sort of connection. On April 11th, 1993, there was a prison uprising. Um, it lasted 11 days. It was at the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility, but most people refer to it as Lucasville, the town where it's located. By the end of the 11 days, 10 people were killed, nine prisoners and one corrections officer. It was kind of one of the biggest things to happen in Ohio. It was definitely the biggest investigation in the Ohio State Highway Patrol's history to date. From that, there are five guys sitting on death row. You know, there are like 47 roughly people who were charged with crimes and convicted of crimes, but there are five guys who are on death row for crimes that took place during the uprising. If you could give us a little background on Keith Lamar, what was the circumstances that brought him to Lucasville? Yeah, so in 1989, he um, was involved in a shooting in Cleveland. He shot and killed someone. He was also shot and he pled guilty and was sent, sentenced to 18 years, I think 18 years to life. Yeah, there was 15 plus a three year, three years for the gun. And so he pled guilty, went to prison, first went to a prison in Southern Ohio called Lebanon, and then was transferred to Lucasville. Was at Lucasville, I think he was transferred in 91, so roughly two years before the uprising. It's an intricate, complicated, multi-layered story that you're telling in season two. And you mentioned at the beginning of this description, Keith, he was shot twice, he shot one person. Can you just take us back to that moment? He says that he was in an apartment where they were dealing drugs. And he was in the back room. I think he says he was counting money. And he heard some people come in the front door. He grabbed his gun. He heard a commotion. He was perceiving it as a robbery. So he grabbed his gun, came out to the front, you know, into the living room. Guns were drawn and he shot and they shot. The uprising takes place in the L block of the prison, which is like one of two of the main housing blocks at Lucasville. Keith says that he was out on the rec yard. Obviously, all this stuff starts to happen. A guard runs out. There's blood rushing down his head. It's just complete mayhem. He says that he goes inside to check on his belongings, you know, because he was like, people are going to be stealing my stuff. So once he goes in, he says that he sees somebody who's locked in his cell. And he's like, uh-huh, I knew this was going to happen. So he says that he goes to the control panel and starts opening all of the cells. Someone starts yelling at him. And he's basically like, what the hell is going on in my cell? And they said, and this is according to him, you can either stay and participate or get out of here. And so he says that he goes back out into the yard and he's there until one, two o'clock in the morning. And the 300 guys who had been out on the yard were then rounded up and brought inside. They were all stripped naked, searched and all that stuff and put into cells in K block. Some were in cells, 10, 10 people per cell. And so he was put in cell K236 with nine other guys. This is now the third day of the uprising. A fight breaks out in the, in the cell. A man named Dennis Weaver is murdered. And he says that he watches it all go down. He doesn't do anything. He feels guilty that he didn't do anything, but it's the kind of thing in prison where you just put your head down and you don't get involved. That's basically what Keith says happened eight days later after Dennis Weaver was killed. The uprising comes to an end and the investigation starts. The uprising at the prison sounds pretty horrific. How many victims were there at the uprising? I understand a corrections officer was killed as well as uh, some inmates. Yeah, there were 10 people who were killed in total, nine prisoners and corrections officer, Officer Robert Landingham. A lot of people say that 
there was less concern about the prisoners who had been killed. And it was more about like getting, you know, some sort of redemption or something for the officers killing. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. So Keith was charged with killing five men, the most of anyone who was charged in the uprising. After the investigation, they decided and came to the conclusion that he was the leader of what they called a death squad. When he went into the L block, into L6, he got a group of guys to go cell to cell and kill four people who had been locked up in cells for their own protection because they were believed to have been snitches. They were believed to have been snitches and they had been locked up for their own safekeeping. So Keith was accused of leading this group of men going cell to cell, killing all these guys, four guys. And then he was accused of killing Dennis Weaver in that K-block cell, calling for his murder. And I think the investigators also accused him of shoving some plastic of paper down Weaver's throat. Did Keith have a reputation while he was incarcerated as some sort of gang leader or instigator of violence? No, I mean, everyone that I talked to, first of all, there were three main groups in charge during the uprising, the Sunni Muslim community, the Black Gangster Disciples, and the Aryan Brotherhood. Keith was not a member of any of those three groups. I asked the warden, I was like, did you, what was like, did you have any problems with him? He's like, I didn't have any problems with him. He wasn't connected with any group. He was a boxer. He had his friends from Cleveland that who were there. But no, he wasn't part of any group or any sort of organized anything. Okay, so what happened after the uprising and how was Keith pointed at as, as the culprit here? I've asked that question a lot. It's all speculation. According to Keith, he says that because he basically told the investigators to get out of here. I mean, I can use the language that he used, but basically F off. He didn't want to be part of any investigation. He said he wasn't going to snitch on anyone because you know what happens to snitches in prison. He believes that because he didn't cooperate, he had a target on his back. I think that the guys in the K-block cell may have started to point the finger at him before the L-block. I've been trying to figure out this whole time what came first, right? Was it the him being accused of the Dennis Weaver killing in K block, or was it the the snitch killings in L block? And I am not sure. It seems like some of the people started to talk. So there were three guys who were basically like the hands-on killers of Dennis Weaver in the K block cell. Look, it didn't look great for him that he was in two places where murders took place, but he told other guys not to cooperate. You know, he was, I think, pretty vocal about saying, I want nothing to do with your investigation. When I was an intern at the local station, but that was 30 years ago, I, even when the guy, the, you know, the senior producer from Jason Flom's podcast was telling me about it, I didn't even make the connection that I had been there. It had been so long. I hadn't thought about this in years. And I mean, I remembered it was such a big deal at the time, but, you know, then it was just like something, I, I literally had not thought about it for decades. So right, you had no preconceived notions about this individual. When you're going into something like this, I mean, you have a background in the true crime media field. So you've come across stories that involve individuals who have perpetrated crimes and have not. And maybe some of the lines there are blurry. But what was your first impression of Keith? Did you think immediately this guy's get a raw deal? The first thing I thought was He's ridiculously intelligent. <laughs> I didn't know what to think. You can read stuff 
like from his website and from his team that very much says he didn't do it and he's innocent. Then you can talk to other people who may think that he is the leader of the so-called death squad and, and maybe perpetrated these crimes. I basically had to just start from scratch and say, I might not ever be able to know. I, I, I'm never going to know what happened. I wasn't there. It seems like there's evidence that at least he didn't get a fair trial. And that's, I think, what I then gravitated towards the most. It seems like there was some stuff that had been withheld from his team. I mean, at the beginning, I have to block out either side. He did it, he didn't do it, and just sort of learn what I can on my own. And again, I wasn't there. I have, I have no idea what happened. I have no idea. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is made possible by PwC. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. At PwC, we pair the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. That's human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. How many witnesses claimed that Keith did order those killings? So everyone who testified against him or testified for the state put him there. And I want to say there were eight people who testified, eight prisoners who testified. And there were a few who put him, you know, in the L block for the L block killings, and then one or two and, and testified about the K block killings. There are a lot of inconsistencies in their testimonies, but they do also kind of tell a similar story. It's 4,000 pages of trial transcripts. I try to put myself in the place of the, in the position of the jurors. Like if I was listening to all these people say the same thing about Keith, what would I have done or what would I have thought or how would I have voted? And this is where I sort of gravitate towards the he may not have gotten a fair trial. The jury didn't hear all the things that have also come out later. There were a lot of things that the jury didn't hear. I think the state put a pretty succinct case together. And so part of me, as hard as it is to say, kind of understands why he got convicted. I get that too, from from a juror's standpoint. Is it possible that these witnesses came up with the story together, though, and kind of conspired to get Keith convicted for this? Yeah, there are some people who believe that there was some coaching that may have gone on because their stories are so similar. There may have been some alleged manipulation that went on with the people who testified for the state. So he was the leader of this so-called death squad. Where did that name come from? People say it was a state, like the state came up with that name or investigators came up with that name. Nobody knows exactly where that came from. Doesn't it feel to you like a really silly name if you're trying to do things in a prison that end in the result of someone's murder that your name for your group is the death squad and it's known to the administration and nothing's done about it until this happens? First of all, I can't believe that it was a name that existed before the uprising. But I also find it really hard to imagine that like, hey guys, join my death squad. Let's go kill some <laughs> snitches. Like no matter who was part of this alleged group of people who went and killed these 
snitches. They didn't name themselves that. I don't believe, I don't believe they named themselves. I think that was a, an investigator's name. You know, they came up with it or the, you know, prosecutors. Yeah. I don't believe that the people who actually perpetrated the murders called themselves the death squad. That was the first thing I thought. And thank you for understanding the question because I worded that one as well very awkwardly. It seems clunky that a group with the intent to go kill snitches would <laughs> apply that name to themselves. Call yourselves the guilty ones. Right, right. <laughs> the tough guys, the executioners. And were there any legal dirty tricks that you uh, could find? I think that there was some stuff I'd never heard of before. During the trial, the defense is constantly in the pretrial motions asking for exculpatory evidence, evidence that would be favorable to Keith. Right there in the trial transcripts I'm reading, and you know, it's like the judge says, Hey, prosecutors, I'm paraphrasing, but hey, prosecutors, do your best. I know you can't go through everything, but do your best. And the prosecutors are like, Yeah, we'll do our best. And I've never heard of that before. I would think that it's like, hand it over, you know, either the order to hand it over or not, but not do your best. I feel like that gives too much leeway to the prosecutors to not. There's that. Then there's also like in asking for all of this exculpatory evidence, at one point, the prosecutors agree to give these a list of 43 names and there are 11 pages of statement summaries. It's read out loud in court, but what they don't do is they don't match up who said what. And the prosecutors say, we promised these guys anonymity, so we can't match up the names for you. And the judge gives, I think, a little bit more time to the defense and a little bit more money for another investigator. But basically, there's no way. I mean, you know, I talked to the defense attorneys and they're like, there's no way to track down. And we had nothing to offer these guys. We can't be like, well, which of these statements are yours? And we can't get, you know, can you just do it out of the kindness of your heart? Can you tell us which? So basically it was, you know, it was a fool's errand. And then in two trials, so they get Keith's conviction. And then in two trials that happened after Keith's, some of those names were matched up with the statements for two, you know, for two of these other trials. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Why did you do that for these guys and not do it for Keith? And Keith was like, well, they needed to get my conviction first because he was the so-called leader. You know, some of that doesn't really seem too kosher. I've never heard of that before. Sure, there's always like prosecutors who don't want to hand stuff over. When it's not handed over and then and or matched up and then it's done in the trials after, like, yeah, there's just a lot of those kinds of things that don't seem to make sense or don't seem like everything's on the up and up. And how was that detrimental to Keith's trial? In some of those statements that were matched up, people named other people as the killers. So if I'm putting myself in a juror's shoes and I'm thinking I'm hearing about other people who might be the perpetrator, that would cause some reasonable doubt. I would say like, hmm, I don't know, maybe I've got to give this a little bit more thought. So I think it was detrimental because the jury didn't hear other theories, other people that had the finger pointed at them. And, you know, in the courts, in the years that followed, after the stuff was handed over in the two cases after Keats, two trials after Keats, Herman Carson went and filed a motion for a new trial and it was denied. And, you know, the judge is basically like, I didn't really think it would have made a difference. And, and that's kind of been what the courts have said all along. Whatever new stuff 
has been presented, it wouldn't have changed the minds of the jurors back in 95. It's a cop-out answer. Yeah, it's easy to say, right? Oh, it wouldn't have changed anybody's, you know, it wouldn't have changed the verdict. Well, I don't know if we can actually say that. I don't know if we can actually know that. Unless you're approaching it from the other angle, which is, well, what would change the minds of jurors? A videotape of him not doing it? Is that the right. only thing that's left? <laughs> right. And someone's holding up a newspaper to confirm the date in that videotape? We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Keith is scheduled to be executed in November. Did I read that correctly? Yeah, November 16th of 2023. How are you and your team trying to prevent that from happening? So he has a whole team. You know, he has a whole team who's very much, you know, doing everything that they can. And, you know, of course, I think Keith hopes that the podcast will help in terms of, you know, trying his case in the court of public opinion. As we all know, the more attention these cases get, you know, the greater the chance that something could happen, a stay of execution from the governor. I've only known him since, you know, it's been around 11 months at this point. And it's really hard to think about the fact that that could happen in what, eight months from now. The hope is that he will get a chance at a new trial. He'll get a chance to get back into court. You know, he wants a ch- the chance to prove not only that he didn't get a fair trial, but that he's innocent. He says he's absolutely innocent. He did not commit these murders. His whole thing is like, when I'm guilty, I say I'm guilty. He probably would have been out of prison had he taken the plea deal. They were going to basically add like no time. It was going to run concurrent. You know, it's, he could very well have been out of prison by now. But he says there was no way I could have lived with myself if I had taken a plea deal and copped to something that I didn't do. He's very, very adamant about that. He is, yeah. And he did plead guilty, which is what got him incarcerated in the first place, I guess. He seems like he does a lot of stuff. Does he, he plays music and he uh, does art as well? Yeah, he, um, and we talk about this stuff in a later episode, but yes, he has a literacy program that he started in 2011. He is a painter. He's the first person to ever record an album from Death Row. There are all these concerts where he calls in and does spoken word. He was a featured narrator at a concert at Carnegie Hall just like a month ago. He does a lot. And you mentioned that he has a team and the team consists of legal representatives, I'm sure. But have you communicated at all with his team and maybe family members? I haven't spoken with his family members outside of his cousin, Kevin, kind of his cousin, more of his friend. Kevin unfortunately passed away like a month after I interviewed him. The advocates have been, you know, incredibly helpful. Keith, has a lot of people in his corner. The main advocate that I've been talking to is a woman named Amy Gordeev, and she sort of runs his Justice for Keith Lamar campaign. She's a powerhouse. She has a husband and she has two kids, but she's dedicated her life, in addition to that, <laughs> to helping find justice for Keith. So they've been very helpful. How realistic is it that he could get a new trial or some prevention of this execution date? I think there is some hope I think that there's some hope. There hadn't been as much hope until just recently. As people are listening to the podcast and they're going through episode by episode, I'm sure there are people out there who are wondering what they can do to help spread the word. And you mentioned the Justice for Keith Lamar movement. Is that one thing amongst many things that people can do? Is there a call to action that you can instruct people to do? I think I would direct people to the website, um, Justice for Keith Lamar. Everything that they're doing, you know, they've had change.org petitions, you know, everything 
that is for him can be found, I think, on that website. So I would, I would direct people to that. And for the podcast, I mean, obviously telling people to listen would be great because the more people that listen, the better it is in general and hopefully for Keith. Um, to get more attention for his case. I have, I started an Instagram page called at the real killer podcast on Instagram. And I put up photos because there are so many people in this story. I put up photos and court documents and things that I wish I had done for the first season. I would direct people there if they want to learn more about the case and see some of the pictures of the people who are talking and you know, um, people, you know, photos of them from back in the nineties or back in the eighties or Keith when he was five. Um, and then some of the trial transcripts and the court documents that Keith says help prove at the very least he didn't get a fair trial, but he says his innocence. Great. Well, keep up the good work, Leah. We'll be following your journey and Keith's as well. Thank you so much. I really, this has been a lot of fun where to say that when we're talking about what we're talking about but it's been really nice talking with you guys 